It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the Dare to Unlead podcast, where I interview inspiring guests about themes contained in the Dare to Unlead book. And today is episode nine. After exploring at the beginning of the series, the context in which we live and work, we addressed liberty and its very practical implications for leadership in episodes three to five. How can we be freer at work collectively and what does it change? We then delve into equality in episodes six to eight, how networks alleviate relationships of domination and submission by enhancing access to diversity and information, thereby increasing collective intelligence. And what comes next after liberty and equality? You got it, fraternity, understood as camaraderie, solidarity, an experience of friendship and support. Can the workplace offer that? And should it even try? Remember in episode two, Stove Boyd was of the opinion that work should be purely transactional. But if we think that, yes, a sense of uplifting togetherness at work is something we can aspire to, if we believe that it does contribute to great teams and successful businesses, then what kind of leadership makes this possible? I am very curious about what my guest today thinks and does about this. Jennifer Sertle is the founder of Agility 3R, a leadership development company. She teaches innovation at Rochester Institute of Technology in the state of New York. She is also the director of marketing for Circle Optics, a company dedicated to transforming immersive experiences through Three, see, I knew I would stumble on that. You know, I tried so many times. Anyway, through 360-degree panoramic imaging capabilities. Jennifer has been dedicated to decentralized leadership and the importance of self-awareness for over 30 years, having gotten her degree at the University of Colorado in, guess what? Existential philosophy. My dream subject if I ever have the chance to return to school. In 2010, Jennifer Serdle and Kobe Herberman published Strategy, Leadership, and the Soul, Resilience, Responsiveness, and Reflection for a Global Economy. I was drawn to Jennifer's ideas thanks to her sharing on social networks, picked up by people I followed. They held Jen in high esteem for the quality and depth of her reflection, and so did I. We met in person for the first time in 2014 in Boston on a catwalk. I have a picture to prove it. It was actually our common friend, John Husband, whom you heard in episode seven, who took a funny picture of Jen and I in which we looked like we're walking a runway. But it wasn't a fashion show. We were there to speak at a big financial industry conference in Boston. And the second time we met in person was just a few months ago over fine cocktails in Harlem. A great time and an inspiring conversation. So when thinking about a guest for today's episode, Jen felt like evidence. 
I deeply appreciate her thinking that is both deeply humanistic and very much rooted in the reality of business and operations. Jen, I'm so happy you could come. Welcome. Yeah, this is amazing. And I, I do actually, um, I love that picture, particularly because, you know, just being at the banking, I think there were like 8% women. And luckily, we had leadership roles there. And so the idea of getting an opportunity to speak to you again is fantastic. Wow. Thank you, Jen. And so I'll start with the very first question I ask all my guests. What is your art, your unique professional practice or the work you do in a unique way? So I'm going to answer that in two ways. I think what, what I do best is really create coherence in kind of a microblog way. Twitter is a language that I understand. So if, you know, if I was in the breakfast club and had to show <laughs> like my, you know, my particular gift, it would be that I am a maven with context curation. In the work world, I'm particularly good at identifying essence within a corporate culture and creating behavioral brand strategies that honor the core identity of the business. And you published a book, uh, as I said, in 2010, Strategy, Leadership and the Soul. How does it remain relevant today? Thank you so much for asking that. And um, I just want to acknowledge my co-author, Kobe Huberman from Tel Aviv. We met at a conference in the south of France and kept up a relationship over Skype. This is in 2005. We audio taped six months of our meetings because we really wanted to be in the flow of the conversation. And the book really wrote itself because as we look back at six months time of our dialogue, everything fit into strategy, leadership, or the soul as a bucket. If I had to re-release it, I would have called it strategy, leadership, and passion because the business world, even today, is really not ready for the concept of soul at work. However, when we wrote it, we really wrote about coherence and questions to create coherence. So I'm so thankful that to me, it is a living book. It is a living invitation, if you will. What difference do you make between passion and the soul? And what is the soul of an organization? Yeah, so we'll start with it. The soul of, the in, of an organization is the internal, intangible, yet extremely present and powerful set of inner beliefs that make an organization unique. You know, even though people have the same skills, they will thrive in very different environments. And finding a culture that you align with is actually very much an affinity-based strategy. And I, I do think it's kind of tricky because I know that the word soul is too religious for businesses. So if we could say it's an identity, but that it's a sacred identity, that would be the way I would describe the soul. Passion is just a safer word of wanting to be in an environment that actually makes you feel more alive by participating. So the more precise word for the work that we did is soul, but I'm still thinking that I wish more people would get access to it. <laughs> Don't you think that the soul has been uh, a little bit purpose-washed over the years? Yeah, I mean, I love that point that you make, and you make it several times in Dare to Unlead, is that very good intentionalized concepts get used for flash in the pan rather than really understanding how, how deeply rooted they are in, in an ideology, for sure. What can we do about it, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think that goes to, you know, even I have to say, like, I tried so hard not to keep chat GPT out of the conversation that I'm having. But 
People like having an answer, but the answer does nothing for you. The, the journey to discover, and in particular, when teams discover together, there's the synapses that connect. And I love the word collegiality. You know, when you think of fraternity, the idea of I care about these people that I'm working to accomplish something with, right? And, and that an answer to a question doesn't do that. The seeking an answer to the question does exactly that. That's uh, fascinating. I was just seeing a tweet before our conversation where somebody explained how wonderful it is to have pre-filled marketing plans, for example. You just ask uh, the machine, you know, I, I want to do this market, a marketing plan for my new app, and then the machine tells you everything you need to think about. But then, as you say, this removes all the, the quest and the uh, collective questioning exercise done as a team. I, I love that. And, you know, also just think about the fact that, you know, you can have grandma's recipe, but you still can't cook it as good as grandma did. Right. And it's because there's the unconscious habit of doing something that you do extremely well or with such great care. You don't even know intuitively what you do differently with it. So if anybody is using that technology, I think it's wonderful. Just please reread it and insert authenticity and make it customized to your particular culture, your particular audience. There is a place for nuance, and nuance only comes from depth, and depth only comes from time and experience. I was about to ask you what changed since 2010, since the time you published your book, and how does it impact leaders or, or leadership? And I guess one of the changes has been this AI, the development of this technology. Anything else? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, when Wittgenstein talked about the limits of my language or the limits of my world, in 2010, I did not have the word decentralized, right? I was working on Holochain, which was um, a cryptocurrency, you know, back in 2011, 2012. And, and I was learning about distributed systems and um, that whole idea of decentralized it was used in technology first. And then, you know, through our work and our colleagues or whatever, you know, we just began to adapt and wirearchy, you know, the idea of this decentralized leadership. So what I'm thankful for is that our vocabulary has gotten better and our, our acceptance of uh, remote work. I have, I have a saying, it is that it is no longer country versus country or city versus city. Today, ideas are countries, right? And that the idea that we can collaborate on, on a global scale and in very intimate groups based on affinity, right? So that, that level of capability paired with the language. And the third thing that's happening now is the desire. People are having more personal agency and getting um, a sense of capability. And the level of modeling has been decentralized so there's much more education available for people that, that want to take deeper dives wherever they want to take that deeper dive. So those are three, three dynamic things that have changed, and they've changed for the better. You're in the country of optimists, right? I, I am a realist. I mean, I, I do remember oftentimes we do more scenario planning on the upside of opportunity, and, and I am a little bit of a buzzkill because I feel much safer being as brave as possible, saying what is the worst possible thing that can happen? I don't think we spend enough time talking about the worst possible thing that could happen. 
And I think we're headed to a place where the worst possible thing could happen. I, I was uh, struck by this quote of yours, um, which circulated the web uh, quite extensively, where you said, you are not a node, you are a node in the network, you are not a node, you are a frequency. What do you mean by that? Thank you so much. Only because I, I do not have any business talking about quantum physics, but it ends up that we know so much more about quantum and it ends up that it's true that we are, we are frequencies, right? And, and when I think of early in my career, I was lucky enough to read the power versus, well, it's called Power Versus Force, The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior. So in 1995 by David Hawkins. And, and what, what this book was about was the fact that language has polarization and certain words create different energetic experiences in the brain. And so this research that I did personally, like not that I did personally, but I, like I got exposed to the idea that words have frequency in 1995 and then have continued just realizing that our, our physiology, our energy field, our word choices, our outlook all have the ability and, you know, listening to some of the guests in your program talking about what you focus on expands and the power of our awareness. So we're so dynamic. We're not, you know, slabs of meat with a function. We're, we're living, breathing, adapting, surviving and complex and alive and, and vibrancy and, and resonance are, are things that are important terms about how we relate to one another. Does that help in terms of, I just don't know what your experience of hearing this is and what can make sure that your audience really understands what I'm trying to say? What I loved in this uh, quote, in addition to what you just explained, was the sense that um, understanding the fact that we were not just a connector, even though that's very important, but not as a, not as a mechanical connector, but there was something more, and probably that something more has to do some, with the soul or at least the art or some form of um, non-verbal connection between people, artistic even, you know, frequency makes me think of sound, music, art, etc. And I really love this idea that we're not just, um, yeah, nodes in a network, we're not just connectors, uh, interchangeable connectors. But there is something really strong that can happen between individuals or ideas or those countries you describe, where we enter in resonance with each other. I really think it's pretty powerful. And I, you know, I I really appreciated hearing what you said about that because the issue is more about agency once again, that it's mutable, that that we have the power to change and create. And the idea of a node is is too fixed in terms of um, function, and and so it does it does make sense that this is, this is the work. And just to give you a sense of my family, I have three children and my son, who's now sixteen. But when he was four years old, he said, "Mommy, does your heart remote control people?" You know, and and I thought like the idea that uh, a four year old had a sense of of the on and off, you know, capability of presence. The idea of presence in a four-year-old was just super fascinating. And um, I don't know how much therapy he'll need, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but like we have these profound conversations about it. So I'm just like, yes, like he, he gets it that like he gets the power of presence 
in in the capability of of relating to something being you know working or not working or however he meant that. Well, that's amazing. Um, I mentioned in the book um, pretty often Esko Kilpi, who said that work is about human beings being more intensely present for each other. I love that. Do you agree? And if yes, what do you do to be more intensely present for each other? Well, I love that you asked that because I have to say, and dear to Unleed, I'm like, oh, I like that person too. Oh, I've read his work too, or I've read her work too, or I know her personally. Like it literally, it literally was so exciting. So I did have a lot of, my synapses went a little bit crazy when you were talking about him and his work. And of course, I think, you know, this, I got to give credit to David White, uh, the great corporate poet who I met in 2000, the statement that I heard that's related to this is he said, you don't have conversations to get work done. The conversation is the work. And and so when uh, Esko Kipi said that human beings more intensely present for each other is that presence creates. And if we're problem solving together, our, our collective presence, our collective purpose, our collective intelligence and our collective, as you were talking about fraternity, it will create a possibility not possible before. But you have to be in the conversation in order to have the insight for the breakthrough. And I sense that COVID and the experience of remote work has, in a way, forced us to be even more intensely present for each other. The bodily resonance was not here anymore. So we had to pay even. That's why people get so tired after spending the whole day after uh, in, in remote meetings, probably. But uh, it requires additional effort to be present for the other, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think that we rely, we don't, we're not even aware of all the different things that happen in relationship. And when you have a component of it taken away, you learn how you have to compensate and, and um one of the reasons why I believe people got tired is that, you know, the the neatest thing about having real meetings is that you usually had to walk back or drive to a place. And I think a lot of people forgot the habit of creating space between. And I, I always say that exposure doesn't mean integration. You know, just because I was at a meeting doesn't mean I heard the insight I need to take action on or the feedback that will help me be better. I just was there, right? So in a, having presence would be, I, I'm there and I got what would be valuable, but then I also need to process it and integrate it. And I just don't think we have a culture that values processing time. And I think that's really an important part of, of being able to learn and adapt and grow and create. Yeah, we have all these back-to-back meetings and focus on ticking boxes, getting things done. How do you save time or how do you make time to reflect and ponder? Yeah, I think it's one of the neat things about me now being part-time. I'm actually on a team as a team member with a role to play. And after being in a, a sole proprietor for 20 years, it's a really good discipline for me to have greater appreciation for constraints, right? So I really want to say it's easy for me as a, as a sole proprietor to create a schedule 
by which I have balance. But it is harder within a corporate culture to create those habits. So what I would invite is that if they don't have a culture that creates that kind of space, I invite people to make a client name. Mine was Joan that I would I would create like I wouldn't do for myself what I would do for other people. Right. So when I started to create a third person, I started to create the space that I needed for Joan. And so Joan would have space in the calendar, which was really my way of actually processing between, right? So, and it, you'll say, like, well, that doesn't have integrity. Is that It has absolute integrity because that third body me that is the person that is to do good work with insight from the meeting or the task that was had will actually have time to create value and you will get the return on that event. <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. I think I'm going to... Uh... Apply that right away. <laughs> right, right. And then the, the, other, the other hack that I do use and I actually ask all of my clients to do is to keep a private journal of what you would do if you could lead. Meaning I, I want to acknowledge that agency is a function of the culture and that people do have more agency than they think they have, but they also have less than people think they have. <laughs> so what I think what happens, especially, you know, the first 90 days a person comes on a team is the most valuable. But what ends up happening is that the value they want to create is limited by the threshold of the culture that they're in. And so if they have a journal, they can write, here's what I'm observing, here's what I might do, then participate. But that Keeping my voice and my intentionality and my observation is valuable, it might not be affirmed in the culture that it's valuable. And so if you create the practice that it's valuable, you can hold those insights and continue to see even while you're participating. If that Does that make sense? Mm, it does very much. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. And uh, talking about fraternity, this sense of togetherness, do you think it is possible, it is achievable uh, at work? Can we, this experience of uplifting solidarity, can we feel that in the workplace? I, you know, I, this is where you're going to be happy that I am going to turn on being an optimist. <laughs> I'm going to say yes, 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 yes. Um, I, you know, I think that Being in a culture where you feel respected and you respect others is, I think, a fundamental human need. And a couple of things, what I am noticing now, organized religion has a lot of complexity, but it's a challenge for us that many are not in communities anymore. In fact, where we are at work, even if we're in Zoom, might actually be the most time that we spend in community. And so I think that For leaders today, I really want you to understand you have four generations at work together and common purpose. And yes, you have objectives and shareholders to please. You also have a community and that community needs care. And, you know, there's so much written on, on, you know, what these teams need. But so the answer is yes, absolutely. It's fundamental and it's fundamental. Humans need to feel a sense of belonging And because so many people are in work environments, and it is almost the only place where they're in community other than family, it's vital that this become a strategic imperative for every culture. Should we think of work as family? Yeah, this is where I'm a little, it's complicated. My invitation would be people have different experiences with family. So when you use that family, 
language, you're going to get their experience with their family. So that to me is the challenge. I like the metaphor of a garden. I I love a, a garden needs good soil. I care less about the seeds. I care most about the soil, right? A lot of times people try and hire a really beautiful plant. They hire a really wonderful, talented person to save the company. <laughs> Can you all know this, right? And, and the challenge is that the talent doesn't take root, right? And so if, if I could invite that collegiality and mutuality and respect and belonging are fundamental and required. And I, I experience the garden metaphor, one that, that you know, helps if people don't have a good association with family. Uh, we hear also often about high-performing teams. Uh, what, in your opinion, makes a high-performing team? Well, I'm, you know, really excited to talk about this simply because I'm in Rochester, New York. And um, there's a gentleman that a lot of people may not know that I would love you to know about. His name is Dr. D.C. and Dr. Edward D.C. And he actually coined the phrase self-determination theory, right? And and what he, you know, and the, the reason I'm bringing it up in this context is that Google actually studied high-performing teams and Daniel Pink wrote a book, Drive, about what motivates us in high-performing teams, right? And all of that, both Google's research and, and uh, Daniel Pink's Drive came from Dr. DC's work. And so what, what is really required at a fundamental level are three, three components of self-determination. Autonomy. People need to feel in control of their own behavior and goals. The sense of being able to take direction will result in real change and, and having people take ownership and, and kind of own whatever challenge or, you know, invitation, opportunity that comes. Competence is that people need to, to gain mastery. They need to learn different skills. And when people feel that they have the skills that are needed or are able to identify the anticipatory skills, it, it gauges in them a sense of, I can adapt, I can, I can learn, I can grow, I belong. And then the third is connection or relatedness. People need to experience a sense of belonging and an attachment to other people. There's another great book that is the smartest person in the room is the room, you know, and that, that we, we need each other. And I do think that our culture really is, you know, like when I work on startup teams, it's all about the founder. Like the founder goes nowhere without a team, right? And, and so um, autonomy, competence, connectedness, I think are really important. And then, you know, and you write a lot about psychological safety, right? And so teams that have the ability to have fierce conversations, I don't know if you've been exposed to Susan Scott's work and that it, we need the ability to problem solve together and we need the ability to disagree together. And another wonderful work that I use with that is De Bono's work on the six thinking hats, right? We need more practice putting on different thinking types of hats, thinking in multiple different ways. When we practice thinking in different modalities, we end up respecting different thinkers on our team. So that's, I'm going on and on. <laughs> no, but that's a, a huge topic and a, and a complex one when, uh, especially in hierarchical, maybe old-fashioned organizations, dissent is a, a shortcut to um, being punished, basically, yeah? economically, uh, from a career progression perspective, and so on. 
where dissent is not seen as constructive, but as um, rebellion. You know, that is exactly why I'm so glad you brought that up, because that's why I kept a journal, because I, I have lost jobs because not being aware of truth thresholds, where I think I'm doing good work, and I think I'm doing accurate work, and it ends up that I actually tripped up on a landmine and lost my job, right? And, and so since that time, I said, okay, cool. I need to learn more about what is the truth threshold in this culture, but then I needed my journal so that I did not in any way diminish my ability to see and value truth. Because I say your competitive advantage is the accuracy in which you scan the environment and how you make decisions. And so if I'm in an environment that's actually compromising my ability to see accurately and articulate accurately, then I'm going to make decisions that are going to make me for a world that isn't, you know, a world that's no longer. And so I need a way to be psychologically safe. I've got a mortgage, I've got kids in college, and I actually need to value my sense-making aperture. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. It makes me feel that uh, in a way this journal is uh, what I did through my blog by writing. Uh, so in that case, it was not private, it was public, but I was careful in not mentioning my employer by name or, you know, disguising a little bit situations so that I, I was not sharing any secret, right? Uh, but in a way that has helped me, I think, a lot uh, in keeping this sense of uh, direction, making sense of what happened independently of the pressure for conformity that I was experiencing in the job, in a way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. In your opinion, what builds trust uh, among people? We touched a little bit on that already, having truthful conversations, being able to um, experience a variety of points of views without uh, appearing as threatening to others. Anything else? For example, in your experience as marketing director right now, what, what is it you're contributing to in order to build trust in team? So I think the another thing is the ability to fail and the ability to learn and the ability to share, here's what I did wrong, here's what I'll do differently. And I, I always look at three things, you know, the organization, the, the surrounding team, and then actions that I actually took. And so the, the only other thing that I would add is we have to be able to fail together and process together and be able to kind of share what we need to do better. And it takes a level of uh, self-awareness and huge trust to be able to acknowledge where we really need to go. Instead of pushing failures under the carpet, you mean? <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, like um, a lot of times there's, vic you know, there's heroes and, victi and victims and, you yeah. know, and I think, no, the issue is that every choice that's made is a dynamic set of multiple choices that have been made. And so you have to look at the structure. I think, you know, when we were preparing for today, I think there was um, Steve Denning had a conversation about, can you state it? Because I think he had more clear about the point, but it oh. does relate to this. That was... Um... The, the sentence by Edward Deming, the oh, thinker Ed, of modern quality. Oh, yes, yeah. Edward Deming. There we go. But Steve Denning also says super I was going to say, I'm saying, he's, he's in my head right now. But yes, the, the Edward <laughs> so Deming. Deming said, uh, a bad system will beat a good person every time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That just, just that, again, I think I was just calling that up because that, you know, that every, 
every situation is systemic and we have to be able to look at the system in a complex way in order to learn from the system. A great, great example was working in a culture that had hired a third shift manager and the, the company was resentful that someone from the existing team wasn't hired. And of course that person failed, right? And then we looked at, you know, many people were like, well, we got the wrong job description. Our interviewing process is wrong and all. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. How did you design for this person to fail? You know, and, and so that is the question that we needed to ask. If this person was designed to succeed, what would it look like? We can have the, you know what I mean? People want to blame a person for a systemic problem. The systemic problem was the resentment that people were not hired from within. Yeah, that's that's deep. Uh, what would you what would you say to um, today's leaders? Uh, anyone listening to us? What should today's leaders do? Less of, or more of, or differently? So, going back to our early conversation, please create space for people to learn and integrate the times and that, you know, like they, it, we are learning, it is a crazy time for reskilling. And so if you're doing your performa based on absolute productivity, you're designing for failure. You need to design in about 20% capacity for learning and processing information. The second is stop looking outside for modeling All of us have had experiences. We've all had bosses we love. We've been on teams that we've loved. Go back to your own experience and think about what mattered to you. We can't give away what we don't have. And so if, if you're not in your own experience, it won't be able to translate and you won't be able to create it. And so I just would actually ask leaders to trust themselves more, create more time for reading for everybody in the culture, read stuff on emotional intelligence, read on emerging technologies, and read on systems thinking. And, and whether you do podcasts or, you know, that's what's so neat about you doing this podcast too, is that it allows, it's a, it's a living conversation. Dare to Unlead is a living conversation. And so the fact that we actually do have living conversations to bring the insights into practice, I think is fabulous. But I just think, I, it's almost like, don't even read my book, guys. Just, just lean into your own experience, create more space for yourself so you can be a better observer and be more present and create what you like of your best boss and, and create less of what you hated with your worst boss. <laughs> <laughs> Are these lessons you've applied to yourself? And uh, do you consider yourself to be a better leader now than 20 years ago, for example? Oh my gosh. Uh, I um, absolutely, I think that the... And I don't know if it's a matter, I think it's just a poss possibly a matter of maturity. I think that, so I, you know, loved, actually, I think this would be helpful, is that I, when I started my career, I was a manager of a call center. I had no idea of going into organization development. I was just doing my job. The CEO at the time said, oh, we're going to do a corporate initiative. Jennifer, why don't you lead it? And in And I was like, I, what? And so um, even without chat GPT, in 1997, I read Peter Senge's The Learning Organization, John Cotter's Leading Change, and Fred Reichheld's The Loyalty Effect. And I designed an 1,000 employee strategy having read those books, right? And so what was my point about that was just the fact that it was accidental that I came into that role. And I think that 
I then hired people that had, you know, the the leadership models. And then I wrote strategy, leadership, and soul that does have a leadership model. And now I actually don't use those models. I ask each culture to create a model that's coherent within their culture. I help them create that. And then, and then we, we work on what would make living this value alive. So the way I'm a different leader is that I'm, I'm just really building what's already there inside of cultures rather than looking to impose from the outside. And I'm so much more comfortable in my own skin, in my own style, and I'm much more comfortable being rejected and not liked. I've come to know that that's change making and it's not personal. And so that's the way I've changed. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Everything you said, that's uh, wonderful. It's really amazing. So, uh, Jennifer, we're coming to the end of our discussion. Unfortunately, it goes too fast, as always. I'd love to ask you one last question. What would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? Well, I would be anyone that has it, reread it, reread it, reread it. And if you haven't reread it, I, I think anyone being tasked with a corporate community initiative, I see a lot of, you know, hashtag DEI, a lot of strategies on um, on how to create inclusion. I really, I really believe that this book is a bibliography of the history of management theory. And it's an extraction of the insights to help design cohesive communication and strengthen team clarity. And in, you know, like I'm also a learner and I invite people as well to listen to the podcast because I've also been listening to the podcast. And it's really, you know, if you go back to the concept of your of vibration versus a node, your frequency, not a node. I, I hear people's voices and 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 the timber of their voices, in particular Myron Rogers, and I feel like I feel like, oh, I want to know him. Before I thought, oh, he's a smart guy. But then I got this sense of, oh my gosh, anyone doing a DEI strategy needs to listen to that particular podcast. So I just think it's a it's a conversation to be had. I always uh, my hashtag on Twitter, read to lead should now be read to unlead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been such a gift uh, to have you on this podcast. I enjoyed our conversation uh, immensely. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All links, uh, resources, where to find you, etc., are listed at the bottom of this podcast. So, and I can only encourage people to follow you, get in touch with you, read what you write, because it's always deep and clever. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together.